out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Boston-based band, the American New Wave Boston-based band, Human Sexual Response. Um, very recently, I spoke to two members of the band, D.B. Lamont and also Wendell Davis, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Let's just get to the chase. Um, so after several minutes of casual chat to get to know each other as you do in the world, that is showbiz. We got down to the um, exciting subject that was the early formative years of the music, well these two musicians anyway, and um, as I mentioned, they are slightly older than me, not a huge amount, but um, it does make sense because I was saying that I was in my mid-50s and this was their reply. Anyway, look, they're both sitting together in a nice kitchen in Florida. And um, so I think Dee Dee is the one who speaks first and then Windle. But you'll get the general gist. I hope you do. Anyway, enjoy. It's, um, it's a good one. I enjoyed this. Well, we're 10 years older than you. So just give the time reference. 66. Yeah, so um, both 66. We were both born in 54. Right. So, um, late 50s, early 60s were uh, my, my formative musical years. And I think we had similar um, likes, even though we lived in completely different places. Um, but I, I think for me, it was Janice Ian and Janice Joplin and um, Mamas and the Papas. Mamas and Papas. And then later it became a little more diverse. And I started liking, you know, like Iggy Pop and um, Roxy Music and right. David Bowie and. You know, of course, Beatles and Stones the whole time. Yeah. Did you embrace this sort of counterculture of the 60s? You know, the 67 Summer of Love. It was San Francisco. Everyone was just Definitely. loved up. I actually was in San Francisco in 1969, the year after the Summer of Love. Right. And, uh, uh, for he, about six months. He was I, a runaway. I, I ran away and I worked for the <laughs> new writers of the Purple Sage and the Grateful Dead. That yeah. is really amazing. So that was when the party was getting a bit sordid and seedy, wasn't it? Was. It? Yeah, it was. It was. It was really kind of breaking up. And uh, someone, some involved, someone invited Charles Manson, and it just was never going to work. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and then the Stones had the you know Hell's Angels as their bodyguards at uh, Altamont. Yeah. Yes. That didn't. So what? So was was music your some a passion that you became quite obsessed with from a very early age? Well, I'll give mine quickly. Yeah. At like age 11, I was in Summerstock Theater and uh, singing and dancing. So a little bit of Broadway influence there. And then uh, quickly going to rock and roll. Right. And um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I was always, my friends and I would always sing around and, you know, play around. And, and we were, uh, my best friend and I were the leads in Pirates of Penzance in sixth grade. <laughs> right but, that's um, um is that gilbert and sullivan yeah, gilbert and yes. sullivan. yeah. Um, right. definitely um this the psychedelic sounds i was very into the rolling stones you know pretty young um i mean they were just everything to me yes and what uh, about those kind of alternative theater groups like the coquettes who suddenly appeared in the oh we movie. knew a coquette our friend my friend david mcmanus was a coquette he was a coquette. So were yeah. things like that drifting into your consciousness? Yes, a little bit. Hollywood long, Andy Warhol. Well, yes, I met Holly and Andy. Um, well, I, the Everson Museum in Syracuse 
opened with the first John and Yoko show, art show ever. And I was at that opening, it was 1968. Wasn't it? This was the first I.M. Pei It was the first I.M. Pei building in the United States. And I met Holly Woodlawn and Candy Darling, and I thought they were magnificently beautiful women. <laughs> but but it but as as time clicked by that evening, I sort of realized they weren't. Tell them what you were wearing. <laughs> I was wearing uh, Andy Warhol Coca Cola jams. That nice. I was very embarrassed by, but my parents made me wear them. Uh, Excellent. Excellent. So early on, I was aware of the scene, and I'm from Syracuse, New York. Deanie in Bangor, Maine, at the time, he and his brother were very into that same scene. Via what magazines? You oh, avant garde and um, all these old you know, magazines. I don't know, just different things that had stories. Yes. So, what, what were your what, what was your family and parents like? What were they kind of? Was it a kind of a creative house or was it a repressive house? Well, my mother's creative, but definitely she was not into the scene. My dad was a real estate agent. They were both very religious, so I was like their devil child. Um, yes. I was the uh, rebellious one, the black sheep of the family. Because there's a few artists I've, I've interviewed, American ones, who, I mean, they had, you know, literally had to go to prayer school to say, can my daughter play the piano? And they had to say, well, I'm not quite sure, but that might be okay. Obviously, it was a disaster. <laughs> she went, that person went on to sort of form some radical feminist band. <laughs> but it was much more extreme you know like the, the UK you know we you know the vicar's there the church is there you know there's a lot of tea and cake and being very nice to each other but it's not that kind of harshness really you don't you don't have that kind of quite such a edge edge to the you know Church of England in the UK that, that feels like you know America has you know. Well Jeannie was very grown up as a child and, and left Bangor, Maine and well, we already couple said he was of, in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I left a couple of times and had to come back and finish high school. And, and <laughs> yes. Whereas, whereas my parents were more open and, uh, you know, not being religious. And uh, I think they were just sort of happy that I had any interest. <laughs> yes. Well, that's cool. So look, as the, as the 60s kind of came to a rather sticky end with, you know, all those people beginning with Jay Dye and like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, you had Altamont. You know, Woodstock, though it filmed beautifully, was a bit of a disaster for anybody who was there from sort of reports that it, I think they had about two toilets for half a million people and one yeah, food store. Like so it could have could have gone even worse, but they got away with it. But they filmed it beautifully, so everyone thought it was a marvellous event. But you wouldn't want those guys ever organising anything ever again, would you really? Um, yeah. You know, then, then the sort of 70s came along. You had David Bowie in the glam period, and then, you know, New York girls, Iggy Pop. So what was sort of coming into your consciousness at that time? Well, first, first off, my brother, Larry Bangor, the lead singer in the band, he's my You're brother. The main song so we grew up singing and dancing, and we were the entertainment. When my parents had friends over for drinks, they would make us come out and sing and dance for them. And um, So that was very early, young, like five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right. And then after, like, 10, 11, 12, we started getting into, you know, Dylan and Joan Baez and, uh, you know, all the pop music and rock rock music and stuff. So that all came later. Tell them uh, about not going to see Janis Joplin. Oh, um, um, <laughs> my idol was Janis Joplin and her, her show was coming up about an hour from Bangor and I had begged my mother to let me go. And how I, old, I, I, hitch, you? I was like 11 and I hitchhiked all over the place anyway. And, um, 
I was about to turn 12 that October coming up. The, her show was in August and my mother kept saying, oh, I'll let you go in a week. I'll, I'll let you know in a day. And then the day of, no, you can't go. So then two months later on my birthday, I went downstairs to go to school, opened the front door and picked up the newspaper, Janice Joplin dead and on my birthday. And so I rolled up the paper, I brought it up to my mom and threw it on her bed. And I said, happy birthday. <laughs> and then I went to school and about, about 10 years ago at Christmas, we always go out and spend Christmas with my mom. And so we're sitting there and she gave me a present. I unwrapped, it was the newspaper. She saved it all those years. <laughs> my God. And did, like, you, and, did, and did you laugh about it then, now? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well I don't still, think she remembered it. You're still pissed off that you couldn't go. Yeah, I never got to see <laughs> it. Yeah, um, and we it. met in 1974. Right. We've been together since so. we met. So 46 years we've been together. That is and magic. When we, when we first started in Boston, um, we were a country and Western band called Honey Bee and the Meadow Muffins. And we um, we were country and Western acapella, acapella group. And then we <laughs> added um, piano, uh, fiddle, piano, and drums, and sort of went off and did a few, like a year or two of gigs. And But in the meantime, we're listening to people like, uh, there was an underground uh, cassette tape thing, not much unlike what you have from the enemy of like bands like Devo and Talking Heads and um, definitely the Ramones, Peru, Peru and, yeah. and Ramones and all these bands that we started loving. And so we flipped our format to rock and roll. And my brother's a really great lyricist yes. and songwriter. So um, that was the um, start. So, so just briefly, how come you wanted to do this country acapella outfit? Oh, we had seen Robert Altman's movie, um, Nashville. Nashville. Oh, and sort of right. fell in love with Ronnie Blakely, who we're actually still friends with. Um, we became friends with her on Facebook and, and yes. sort of communicate back and forth. But we fell in love with Ronnie Blakely and just started writing all our own country songs that were, you know, super dramatic uh, love. Beautiful. Songs. Yes, they, lo they love a good narrative in a country song. So was it sort of, I mean, as, as 70, 75, 76 progressed, there was the Ramones in the UK, we had the band and punk started. Did that all sort of start to filter into your sort of consciousness? Oh totally. yeah, we were totally hanging out at small dives, small bars, dives dive that, bars. you know, the stage had a light bulb and, uh, you know, that was the lighting. The, um, rats, the rat skeller called The Rat in Boston was where we saw like Blondie uh, with, you know, an audience of 12 people. Uh, talking Heads, Devo, everybody there, we saw them all and with no audience, nobody knew. Yes. And so we were tuned into it early and lucky enough to see all these great bands that early on. And so the Boston scene, from talking to the photographer last week, um, it was the place that all the bands would come to first. Was Boston. It was really, it was really amazing. And the and the and Boston had a scene of its own that was really pretty amazing. Um, the Clash played Harvard Square Theater. That was their first venue in the United States, I think. Yes, and 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 I have to say, having it captured in those photographs does make yeah. it look absolutely beautiful. Actually, yeah, so um, yeah. yeah, so you you oh, were. I did not sleep with Michael Greco. That's <laughs> not true. <laughs> he, he says so in the book. I slept but... with his girlfriend, but not him. I have to say, he's got beautiful face and amazing teeth now. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen him lately? Yeah, I uh, saw him probably about what five years ago, six uh, years ago. 
All right. Is it that long already? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, About six, six or seven years ago, we saw it. So look, so then how did, you know, 77 was a big year for you. We had the Silver Jubilee, the Queen, you know, never mind the bollocks came out, and then you formed the band. Yes, yeah. well, yes, we were 76. We formed the band with, um, you know, we already had our the four singers. So Casey and Larry, Jeannie's brother, Jeannie and I were the four singers. And we had another band, but uh, we moved on from them. Another guitar player and a bass player and a drummer. And we moved on. We found Rich, Chris, and Malcolm, and that became the core of the band. Actually, we found Rolf Anderson was our first b bass player before Chris McLaughlin joined a year later. But yes. Casey, the female singer in the band, the one who sang uh, Jackie O, yes. um, uh, worked in publishing at Little Brown. And the first book that she helped edit was Human Sexual Response. By Masters and Johnson. Blimey. When we were looking for a name for the band, we had come up with all sorts of different names. And she said, oh, I think we should call the band Human Sexual Response. We're like, oh my God, it's so long. It's like, so uh, people won't like it and it, we're gonna have trouble with it and all that. But, but it was perfect. And we knew it was perfect. We knew immediately kind of like, well, maybe it will work, you know? Yes. So. And you saw, it, the, it, you know, the Sex Pistols and that obviously now all sounds, you know, you yeah. can say that. You could say that in front of your grandmother and it doesn't sound yeah. bad, but back then it would have been like, oh. Well, my, yeah. I actually had an aunt who was in her, um, in 77, she was in her late 70s and she saw the Sex Pistols on, I think, were they on Ed Sullivan? No. Anyways, they were on TV and my aunt thought it was us. <laughs> oh, I saw your band on TV, but I couldn't recognize any of you. But yes. when, we, when we were first starting to really catch on and, and Jackie O was quite a hit in Los Angeles. And anyway, we got rejected by big record label after big record label. They said, we will sign you if, if you, you change, change your, your name. name. Right. Because yeah. just, I was going to say in Liverpool, there was a club called Eric's back in the 70s. And there was a band called Big in Japan and that had all these characters in it who all went off to do sort of probably other bigger things in, in life but I remember Jane Casey who was in the band she said because they were sort of quite a funky group of people but they said but she said they they kind of wore their neurosis on stage because they were all sort of wild kids who all sort of from different backgrounds I mean they've all turned out fine I mean did it have the same feel with your gang of uh, musicians and creative types that you were all sort of quite interesting in an odd way I think we kind of clicked in that way together. Like all of us sort of felt like we were definitely unique and different from most other bands. And, uh, and that was our, um, you know, that was our best quality about the band was that we were unique and kind of quirky. And at the same time, groundbreaking. Larry's lyrics are really, um, you know, they weren't just sex and drugs and rock and roll. He was talking about relationships and the environment and the environment and you know just different when we played london we played at the venue in victoria station yeah and um uh the enemy did not like us but we considered that good well actually they said the best of the, of the american lot but that's not that's saying much. much they sucked yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they said we looked like the road well they came out four issues in a row so the first one said they looked like the road crew from godspell <laughs> But um, Pete Townsend came up to my brother and I after the show at the venue, and I saw him, and I was like, oh, Pete, how you doing? He goes, very human, sexually responding. 
<laughs> yes, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it was a sort of period of great change and sort of, you know, I mean, in, in New York and, and sort of CBGB's and the Mud Club and also Max's, I mean, there was a huge amount of sort of drugs going on, wasn't there? Let's face it. Did you we, manage we to do drugs because we um, sang. sang four part harmonies six nights a week. Right. So we, we didn't really do drugs. You know, we'd have a couple drinks after a show or whatever. Um, our first gig in New York, we appeared, our, I did about 500 posters to plaster the city. I think we were playing hurrahs, I can't remember. Uh, but I did a, a we had a photo shoot of the band where we- tracks. Might have been tracks. <laughs> Anyhow, we, we um, drew our own portraits, self-portraits on paper bags, put them over our nude bodies, put the bags over our heads and did a lineup of the band. And that was the posters I plastered Manhattan with, full frontal nudes. Yes. And, and the best was walking around Manhattan and seeing them being defaced. So people had drawn on them fabulous drawings. So I collected back a few. I don't know where they are. I think they're archived someplace. But um, they would draw like giant breasts or giant penises on us. And it was hysterical. So did the band sit down and have a manifesto at this stage, you know, when you were starting of what you wanted to do? You know, we were already so... Uh, you know, the four singers, we were already best friends and, and you know, Deanie and Law are brothers, but we, so we already had a, a way of life that we were living sort of communally and, and uh, so we're all artists as well. And so it was easy for us to... was really what, what could we do to stretch ourselves or to make us more accessible? Um, you know, early on in in the States anyway, the punk clubs were, I mean, there weren't mosh pits because people weren't fighting. It wasn't a revolution. It was a, a gathering. I mean, it was a really uh, loving- like a happening, more like a happening yeah. or a love-in. And, and if someone got knocked over on the dance floor, everyone would pick them up and dance together. I mean, it was yes. really quite a wonderful time. A yeah. lot of, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the uh, rock and roll clubs had a lot of gay people in them. It was all mixed. You know, it was, it was really mixed quite well. When slam dancing came, fat became fashionable. It really upset us. It upset the band. We didn't like it, so we would actually stop uh, performing during a show and just say, you know, until you guys stop slamming and hurting each other, we're not going to sing. But that was until later, like 81, 82, 80, you 81, know. Yeah. Yes, because because in the UK. I mean, this is going to be slightly different, but you know, in the eighties, we we sort of a lot of bands have a five-year narrative, and with the right. indie bands, we had this kind of back, you know, like the DJ John Peel was the alternative guy who would have a late-night station on Radio One, and then you had the music press. So most people would get together, you know, they have that year, you know, year to eighteen months of just messing about, having you know, being in the band, creating a single, a bit of a scene. They'd get the John Peel play, a bit of a John Peel session where you'd go and record four tracks in one day in a you know, BBC studios. And then that, that sort of elevate them to that first album. They'd be touring around the UK. Now, you, the UK, as you realise, is, is nearly the size of your house, isn't it? It's tiny. You can just travel <laughs> all over the place. Quite In America, you know, it's huge, isn't it? So, you know, bands have that kind of ability to sort of go and play gigs randomly. They get their little transit band. They drive up to Leicester, Newcastle, Leeds, Norwich. You know, and it's all quite cozy. It's often when they're getting into that second album problem 
and they've also been together a bit too long and also there's been a real lack of money that things start to go a bit tricky so how did it sort of work with you because you hit your first single was Jackie O wasn't it which was kind of uh, Jackie O and What Does Sex Mean to Me were the, were the two top songs on the album yeah um, well What Does Sex Mean to Me by the way when we when it was played on was it BBC Two or uh, BBC One, Two, Three, and Four all blooped out the word vagina. vagina. <laughs> <laughs> beeped it out, beeped it out of the song. Um, and in the states, they would sometimes blurp it, but usually they would play it. Yeah, it, it got um, played. But in the states, we had college radio, right? And so we could play, and we could go across the United States, back and forth across the United States. Touring States playing in college to, towns to sold out shows everywhere. It yeah, was great. So it was quite easy to be successful in not a grand way. Yes, absolutely. But did you sort of feel like you were sort of part of a movement that was kind of kind of gathering certain you know traction? Definitely. But we were um, sort of in the beginning of the movement. Do you know what I mean? We were playing clubs that uh, were pretty new. Um, to new waivers that had just bought their first Fiorucci's. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because it, it was, again, late 70s. Yes. Not, not, not mid 80s, you know. <laughs> and, the London, and, and the punk the scene. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the punk scene in America is quite different to the one in, in London, isn't it? Or the UK. There was quite a different vibe that goes on because, you know, it gets quite blokey in the UK. You know, you had bands like Sham 69. It becomes a bit macho. There's always a lot of fighting. You know, yeah. there's the rise of the National Front and there's all that kind of members of, you know, the crowd start turning up and doing the Nazi salute. So, but in the UK, in the USA, you know, when you sort of look at what was going on there with people like Television and Blondie and CBGBs, there was much more of a, people don't, haven't got the Mohican and the big kind of, ripped clothes and the, and the safety didn't quite so much is it right. yeah i mean they, they had that but only as fashion it was it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a revolution right in uh, the states the boston scene though was a mashup of all types of art they had photographs videographers musicians uh, everybody was sort of mashed together so when you did an event it would be multimedia usually a lot of our events were. Of course, video cameras then were as, huge, you know, video, huge. You know, giant TV cameras. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, we, would, we would do like events for like Mother's Day. The whole band would dress up like mothers uh, from the 50s with aprons and old dresses. And we'd each sit doing uh, motherly chores for an hour while the audience came into the theater to sit for our show. And we'd just be sitting on the stage knitting. Well, no, I think I was vacuuming. I think I was vacuuming. I was making pancakes. Somebody else was sewing. Casey was sewing buttons on yeah. people's shirts that were missing buttons. And then we'd do a show. <laughs> uh, people would be filming it. People would be phot photographing it. So um, I don't know if you've heard of um, Nan Golden. No, she's a photographer in, in the United States and pretty famous. Anyway, she was a go-go dancer for the band. Pat Hearn was a big gallery owner in Manhattan. She was one of our go-go dancers. So we would make events out of our shows. Our go-go dancers were called the Responsibles, by the way. Right, okay. But with your, with, with your first album that came out, I mean, yeah. there was some quite amazing titles in it, but fuck. Yeah. Well, that was not on the first album, actually. Yeah. It, that was added on later as a jab from the uh, record label because we switched labels. 
So they re-released the first album and put Buttfuck on it. Buttfuck right. was done as a joke, personally, for us. And we did it for our audiences. It was never, ever meant to be on that album. And it destroyed the album, I think. Because we can't play it, we can't, like, you know, play it for It's just families. a joke, you know? Yes. So, well, so we were in the recording studio. I do studio. love the filthiness of it. Yeah, now. we love it. But <laughs> So the we were in the recording studio, and during off times, we just recorded Buckfuck because we thought it was so funny. And, and it was really well, just for our personal, yeah. unfortunately, we were stupid. We let it, you know. Let it lay with the original label. Right. But I thought, you know, you were on television, from, from what I heard from the photographer, and you oh. played it and they had to sort of pull the state, you know. Yes. That was on um, Five All Night Live out of Boston, Matt, Matt Siegel. And um, we had done three songs. I think we had done Jackie, Unba Unba. And Sex. And um, What Does Dolls, Sex Mean To Me. And What Does Sex Mean To yeah. Me. And then they said, we want you to do your filthiest, dirtiest song. Most outrageous Most outrageous song. song. And we're like, should we do Black Buck? Because <laughs> we only did it live and for fun and not for TV. And we thought, oh, what the hell is, and I screw it to them. But, but <laughs> wait, I begged them, begged them literally to, to read, read the, the lyrics. lyrics. Oh, no, no, no we don't be, need to, it'll whatever. be fine. Yeah. So it ended up very bad, badly at the end of that night they with the producers screaming at my brother. I'm like, look, you asked for it, you got it. They didn't. <laughs> They didn't, their censor didn't catch it until the last verse. The censor was asleep. He in was the booth. asleep in the booth. And so it, it went broadcast all across this country. It was a nationally broadcast show. So, so when you woke up the next morning. Oh, praise, high praise in the Boston Globe. Um, this woman called The Mouth, Norma Nathan. She was a big, she just passed away a few years ago. She was called The Mouth, was the name of her article. And she wrote, All the power to human sexual response without the element of the obscene that can be no true or real conception of life. And she wrote all about the show and how we got pulled and, and this was really great. Yes, bloody <laughs> hell. That was, yeah, it that, was pretty that funny. Was, so then, you know, because, so you, was there a certain honeymoon period with your first album? Uh, yes, I mean, it, it was all open doors for us. It was really, we really had an amazing time. Every show we did anywhere we went was sold out. Yeah, it was we really, really had a great uh, time. And of course, you know, we drive across the country and we get, we would get to LA and in LA we were big superstars because they were playing us on K-Rock. Everyone on the West Coast had to listen to human sex, two human sexual response songs an hour. <laughs> so, yeah. for like those, six months so we'd go and stuff. make you know at the, the time i think ten thousand dollars was like you know fifty thousand yeah. dollars oh we were talking about drugs so all the djs in la came to our big show and they in the dressing room had dumped out a time tunnel circular time tunnel of cocaine on this big table and um we're like oh geez what like, a waste you guys have it and um i think Somebody, maybe somebody with a crew made a big X through it <laughs> and then gave it to all the DJs. It was, a, it was yeah, it's a good one. So how did you, how did you, so as, as with a lot of things, the, you know, the scene changed and sort of, you had that punk period and then there was the post-punk period in the UK, you know, we had people like Magazine, Gang of Four, you know, Public Image Limited, things kind of, the music scene was also sort of changing. And then sort of a few years later, we had that kind of more indie pop sound with bands like The Smiths. So how were you dealing with that kind of moment of 
of seeing the different, you know, like a different studio sound, different producers coming in, you know, the, the sort of bands wanting a different sort of band. How, how did you sort of follow up that first we album? We didn't really think, think about think it much. Way. We just did our own thing. Mike Thorne produced our second album. We adore Mike Thorne. That was such an honor to work with him. Um, so was that before he did Soft Cell? No, he had done Soft Cell already. And he had also, you know, he did Wire. That's why we pick him. We picked Bowie first, but Bowie was too expensive for us. And he was a fan of the band. The enemy wrote about him buying our records and questioning his taste. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he bought our single and they go, what's going on with Bowie? He's into buy human sexual responses, Jackie O and what does sex mean to me? And, and then the next month issue came out and it said, uh, oh, now we're really beginning to wonder, Bowie's come in to buy human sexual responses album. God forbid. <laughs> Anyways, um, never met him, but he actually allowed me to sing changes in a documentary uh, once with no no fee. That was nice. That was amazing. So you yeah. met the man. I mean, he was no, my- I never met him. I only spoke to his management company. We worked with his bass player, Gail Ann Dorsey, once for a while, and she was really amazingly wonderful. Yeah, Gail is a good friend, and she actually hooked me up with his management to get the use of, but, of changes. But so. so we were just sort of going along, and our shows were sold out, and we were really doing quite well. We never wrote and performed a dance song. So that's one reason why we're not still around, I think. Um, but but anyway, yeah. <laughs> but but the um, you know everything was going really well, and we were having a great time. Uh, but it is a little bit strenuous on the road. And Deanie's brother Larry wrote all the songs, and he just started saying, "I just don't know if I can keep writing songs for four people to sing. I want to be the only singer. These are the songs that so I've written." Parted and I want to sing myself. Right. And so that's what ended the band. Yes. Because we, we can't, you know, we didn't want to make him. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't really make somebody. I think that he maybe that's a very that a little bit. That's a very fluffy version of how it ended, but that's it is. okay. No, that is how it ended. <laughs> um, I remember we were in Washington, D.C., sold out show, and after the show, we just said, I just want to be the only singer. And, you know, that's Did you had you felt had you felt things changing? Yes, yeah, because it was getting song, a little tough on the road. Songwriting was getting more complicated. It used to be that Larry would first sing songs to all the of us singers, and together we would <laughs> present it to the musicians. Well, it got to a point where Larry would go and learn the song with the musicians, and then call us and then bring us in other three singers in. Um, and so we were sort of being pushed out of the process uh, only because it made it simpler yes you know, to write songs. Yeah. so what, um, what so what was the not the moment but what was the year that was that 81 82, the end of 82 yeah 82 and then and what he happened the zulus Pardon? Uh, larry, larry formed the zulus and uh wendell and i moved to key west <laughs> and that was yes. and, and then what happens next well then we had a, a Puppet troupe where I acted with uh, puppets that Caleb and Wendell, our friend Caleb Fulham, was a um, renowned puppeteer in Boston and writing phenomenal shows, more for adults than children. They were, you know, intellectual shows or operettas almost. 
and I would record the music for the shows and act in them. And uh, we toured four months in Pro Key West, four months in Provincetown, four months in New York. But I have to say that the bands that we had from all across the country and from Europe sort of never let it go. And so maybe three years after the band broke up, we did a reunion show that was completely packed, jam-packed. Three years after that, no, five, every five years we did them. Every five years, yeah. and then, well, it turned into five years, but first it started three years. But so we did one two years ago, and about 4,000 people came to see us. It was pretty nice in Boston. Yeah. In Boston. Yes. That was exciting. Because one thing I've noticed, and it was kind of a lot to do with um, a lot of these publications, but also talking to other artists, there seems to be a passing of time, which I've got down to about 25 years to 30, where, you know, people back then did stuff had a good time, but went like, that's it, we must get on with our lives and make some money. And then have sort of looked back, not just with rose tinted sunglasses, but just like looking back at what they did or what you did and thought, actually, that's really good. And, you know, and I've noticed there was, you know, books have come out, lots of photographic books in the last kind of six months. And there's books on fanzines from that time. And, you know, a lot of the music that people have started to listen to again that haven't listened to it for that three three decades ago, and actually this is really impressive. I'm, I'm, you know, it was kind of at the time, it was just what we did, then we just threw it away and then sort of got on with life. But then reappraising it, thinking, actually, this is good. Because in the 60s, you know, the Beatles and Stones immediately was kind of amazing. But in the 80s, when the sort of late 70s, I think a lot of it was looked upon as being a bit disposable. It's like, oh, God, that's all right. But then you kind of dig down a bit and think, actually, this is really talented music and all photography do you sort of feel a little bit the same that people have started to rediscover you and have that feeling yes and but i also want to mention that you know it was in the early 80s that the record companies were just completely falling apart um we were uh we played in in new york one night maybe in 1980 what what year did my sharona and the neck come out it's probably around 80 81 anyway they opened up for us at uh, Hurrah's in New York. Their and big New York They debut. were already number one on the billboard charts and their record hadn't even hit the stores yet. And you know how that works. In the States, the record company just buys all their records back and then <laughs> them the putting charts. them number one. So, so here yes. we, walked in, we walked into our dressing room, I never forget it. And uh, you know they have two dressing rooms, one for the opening act, one for the headliners. And we were the headliners. There were six racks of clothing and bags and two bodyguards, and I watched, and they go, who are you? I said, uh, who are you? This is my dressing room, and you'll have to leave now. <laughs> so I picked the knack out of our dressing room, and then, Excellent. of course, we went, they opened up, and then they we got booed. <laughs> but, but I think- Warhol there, was there that night. Yes, Andy was. Warhol was there. So. Took my picture with this Polaroid camera. But the, um, but it, the record companies were sinking their money into bands that were, you know, not what people were going to see. Yes. So there was a lot of money being lost in the music industry and the whole thing was so old and over. So we were struggling. Well, I can't say we were struggling because we really did quite well, but we never got support. We from, got to quit our jobs. <laughs> yes, we got to quit our jobs and go on tour. And just be on but, tour. But in terms of, of support from, the, from a big you know, record company, no. Um, and so you know, that, that was going on in the early 80s so and I was just going to say with your I mean with a lot of artists they 
there's a sort of tricky experience they have of publishing and ownership of you know material music did you did that did that work out or was that a bit of a disaster uh we had our own publishing company yeah we started set that up early on so we were okay protected that way and who were passport was it passport records or yes. uh, first it was um an independent label called passport or uh, yeah passport and then no before passport what was um eat records was the independent label that was don rose who later went on to, to own rico disc right um he's the one that released buttfuck through rico disc re-releasing the figure 14 as figure 15 putting buttfuck on it because we had left him and gone to passport passport gave us a hundred thousand dollars to work with mike thorne which was unheard of in, in 1981 you know that's amazing. I did an interview with Mike and um, it was amazing because I think he did when he was a very young kid, you know, like in the early 70s, he worked with Deep Purple and created the sound that's on one of their first, you know, one of their iconic singles, which is kind of, he explained it was like the air conditioning sort of being switched on and he sort of put the mic in it and uh, that was Mike and he went on to work yeah, with he was great. people he was like, great. you know. Yeah, amazing TV, but he was very much, he, 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 I suppose most people have a zeitgeist period and he definitely got it on the, on the 80s, didn't he, with his production. We just saw him uh, when we, two years ago when we played in Boston. Yeah, they, he and his wife Layla, show. who's wonderful, came to see show. us. Yeah. Yes. So then in 1999, you reissued Jackie O, didn't you, as a dance version? Oh, I did as Musty. So and I did it with... Um, I was touring my cabaret Wait, show. So you have to. So Deanie has a drag career. After that, I, I from um, ninety four till ninety well till about two thousand and six, I was musty chiffon uh, cabaret, rock and roll cabaret, and I was doing shows in Key West. And this guy came up to me and he goes, "Have you ever uh, recorded a record?" I said, "Yeah, a few." And he goes, "Well." If you ever meet a producer, I'd love to um, record, re-record re Jackie O's as a dance song. And I said, oh, well, I just met a producer last night. And he gave me his card. His name is Bob Esty. And he goes, oh, well, has he done anything? I said, I don't know. Let's, let's call him up. I called him up and he, I said, Bob, I'm, I'm with this record label out of LA. They want to know if you've done anything before. And he goes, well, I produced a few not so famous songs, um, one for Donna Summer called um, Take Me Home, no, Share, Take Me Home, Main Event Fight for Barbara Streisand, um, It's Raining Men for the Weather Girls, and Donna Summer's um, Last Dance. Last Dance. And he goes, oh, okay, we'll take him. <laughs> so he produced that. So Bob produced that, and, and Bob's a great friend. He just passed away this year. Right, yeah. yes. And were you pleased with the, with the result? I was. I wish I had a little more hand on the production of it, the final um, pressings and, and stuff. I would, would have added a few things, but no, I, I, I was really pleased with it. I got to tour discotheques for six months straight with just me. And, uh, you know. I kind of wish it, it was really fantastic, or it is really fantastic and very disco. I wish it had been more of a rock and roll dance song. Yeah. Um, I wanted yes. a little more guitars in it, a little more and they wanted to lean more to, towards disco, but um, it was fun. Yes, and with, with your drag period, unless you're still doing it, I mean, were you influenced by people like Joey Arias? I know Joey very well. I know <laughs> all of them. I know Rue, I know Bunny, 
I know Lipsica, I know Varla, I know all of them. They're all friends. Okay. I did an interview with Joey very recently and uh, yeah. I didn't realize he was in Zoomanity and you know, he did his Vegas thing. Yeah. He yeah, he did the Vegas yeah. thing. He's, uh, he's quite a creature. Well, we took him on a hike once up in the Catskills in, in New York State and it was in the winter and we were walking for maybe an eighth of a mile. And he said, how far are we going? Are you taking me out in the woods to kill me and eat me? <laughs> I said, no, yeah. Joey, we're just going on a hike. It was like a three-mile hike through the snow. <laughs> yes. Oh, Hysterical. Bless him. Bless him. Yes. So, what, I mean, just what would you have said to a, an 18-year-old self starting out in, in sort of the entertainment and the, the interest in the world that is rock and roll and entertainment? I mean, if you could have said something to your a younger self with the decades of experience and wisdom that you've picked up. I just wondered what you would have kind of whispered in their ear. Oh, good question. Well, you know, the obvious, which is, you know, do what you like, you know, don't, don't think that you're going to write a hit song. Just think you're going to write a song, you know, um, you know, don't have false impressions of, you know, what being famous is either, because we know a lot of famous people and they, they're just people as we yeah. know. Yeah. But, um, I don't think I would have changed anything really. I, I, I mean, I- Yes, I, but what, 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 what recommendation would you give, give to, to myself, someone? he said. You yeah, know? I just wanted if you would have said, oh. Like do this one, differently. Yeah. yeah. I would have said, make sure you yeah. write a dance song. Dance song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a few of them are dancing, but not the, the lyrics didn't go with it, so. No, but you must be really, I mean, Still very pleased with what you put out in that. Oh, I, I adore our first album, and the second album's good. Um, it's just not to me as good as the first album. See, I, I like the second album. The first album is really wonderful, but uh, the it's we sort of really dig into the rock and roll in the second second album that I love. Because one thing I've been quite impressed with, and I wasn't but before I was doing all these interviews, was I suppose it's the bands that I didn't particularly like. I suppose for various reasons, I didn't think music was that great. And also, you know, we, we get a bit bitter about people with big success. But they, they obviously kept their eye on the big prize and went through it and, and, um, and sort of kept themselves together as this kind of unit. I mean, did you ever feel that band therapy could have been a way to keep, if you really wanted to keep the band going and progressing and evolving, but like, let's just, you know, a bit like people like, I don't know, Rolling Stones or U2 or, or one of those kind of bands who you just say, we must really piss each other off. But they, they obviously think, let's, you know, our solo work is not gonna sell. It's not gonna buy, buy us that nice house, those nice yeah, trees. Well, I think for us, the band therapy was to be smart enough to break up when we did. I think it's the time was right. It was really sad. And I wish that we had stayed together and done a dance song. But, yeah. but really, the time was right. We, you know, it was time. You know, yeah, we, we was, all, Casey went on and had her wonderful daughter. Um, Cameron. Cameron. Who has the band Glasser. Yes. You know Glasser? That's Casey's daughter. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you know, so, you know, if we had gone into therapy, the therapist would have told us to get a divorce. Because <laughs> <laughs> we you... were pretty good with each other. We really had a wonderful time together. Yeah. I mean, there were moments, of course. But... And we're all still friends. I was going to say, we... do, you, do you still sort of, when you had those reunion gigs, oh, did they feel like nice moments? 
We do oh. parties on our, we live, live in Maine on an island in the summer. And every year we do a party where pretty much most, most of the band members come together and we perform and have a blast. So it's a lot of fun. We, we talk to each other all the time. Yeah. Still. Everybody's still in touch. Yeah. Yes. I guess you must feel like it's been a journey. This has been mm -hmm. such a part of your life, right, that's gone through from that period right through to yeah. now. Yeah. Which is amazing. And how do you get on with your brother still? Great. He's great. He's in Manhattan. Oh, no, he left Manhattan when COVID hit, and he moved upstate New York to Hudson, New York, where we lived for about uh, 16 years. Yes. So what, as we come to the end of this interesting chapter here, your president, what have you got planned for next year if things can, can go a little bit smoother? Oh, a trip to Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, but we're actually <laughs> thinking of maybe doing it one more, more time. time. Yeah. In, um, what is it, 2025? in Boston. Yeah, one more in um, Boston, we'll see. Casey is now 73 <laughs> and she'll be 75 when we do the next one, so we'll see. But she's really unbelievable if you see her, you just can't, you can't, you know, She looks, you know. 40. She, yeah, well, she <laughs> really looks, amazing. She looks 50. She looks amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> flawless, she's pretty flawless though. So. Um, amazing vocal. Yeah. 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 Well, look, guys, thank you ever so much for giving me the time. And when it's I did, I should have met you. Indeed. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to D.D. Lamont and also Wendell Davis, two members of Human Sexual Response. Um, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these uh, have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.